And now, coming to you live from the wilds of the internet, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with special guests Kelly Eskridge and Nicola Griffith on the Coot Street Podcast! That's, um, for the, <laughs> that is, uh, yeah. I might redo we that just, later. We just, we, we just, we just let Jonathan do that every week. Um, That's actually my uh, well, I can go. Well, th- I want to th- thank you both for being with us because, uh, for one thing, you're always delightful to talk to, and secondly... Uh, as I think I mentioned on an earlier podcast, uh, when we were in Brighton at the World Fantasy Convention, all I was hearing about was was Hild. Um, not, uh, I mean, there were other things, but basically everybody, it, I got the impression everybody had read it but me. Um, so con- first thing to say is congratulations on the Nebula nomination. Thank you very much. And the second question is, and you may have heard some of this too, uh, this year's Nebula ballot, has generated some interesting discussions, uh, not only with Hild, uh, with Andy Duncan and Ellen Clages' story, uh, with Karen Joy Fowler's novel, and some of the responses have been, uh, what is this? Is this science fiction? Is this fantasy? Uh, have you heard any feedback like that? Uh, we were, we had dinner last night with Ellen Clages, actually, and she was talking mm. about how pleased she was to be on the ballot, but I haven't read her novella and I have no idea what it's about. So I was just nodding and smiling and drinking and thinking, I'm pleased too. That's about mm-hmm. as far as I've got <laughs> with analysis. Well, I, been, uh, go ahead. I was just, I've been spending um, a fair amount of time uh, just reading the responses online and I'm fascinated by the conversation that's emerging about Uh, the ballot this year and about the expansiveness and the variety of the ballot. And and there are the people who think that this is nothing but good for the speculative fiction industry. And then there are people who think this is nothing but awful and that it indicates a a lack of focus. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to be very interested to see which way the conversation shakes out over the longer term in in terms of future award ballots, etc., do you think that that focus is actually something that's even desirable at this stage with something like this? No, I, I think science fiction is in the middle of science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction in general, is in the middle of a huge change. And I, I think focus would be um, a limiting thing. I, I want to see it expand and I want to see people explore. I think people are going to bump into their limits soon enough, uh, because we all do. But it's going to be interesting to see what people do with that and how they respond and how it folds back in and how it changes the genre. Do you see evidence? I mean, I realize that probably like me, you haven't read everything on the ballot or anything near to it. Do you see anything that particularly is evidence of that, of that uh, change of uh, focus, change of approach, uh, increased expansiveness that goes beyond something like the, the nebula ballot, which is a, a very positive thing, but that goes beyond that? Well, the most obvious thing to me is just, I'm just looking at the best novel list right this second, and 75% of it is women. It, mm-hmm. That's the most startling thing. And then you look at the publishers, too. The publishers are FSG, they're uh, Marianne Wood, they're Morrow. These are not your normal genre it's not tour dot it's not tour it's not all orbit it's not all bane i mean those books are there too but it's evidence to me of how the publishing industry itself is more accepting of books by people who came up in what we used to think of as the genre and you have Ferrar strauss uh yes i guess in the good example of that and and Paolo Bacigalupi's novel is coming out from Knopf. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I, you're right. This is a very healthy sign. On the other end of that spectrum is, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lyndon Nagata's novel may be the first self-published novel to be on a Nebula ballot. I, I, it, that amazes and pleases me enormously to see this spectrum in there. And also mm-hmm. I've read Linda's book and enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm curious what you both think about this because you've both got a lot of experience in editing and writing and the publishing industry. Do you think the kind of uh, more expansive view of the field 
is a stable thing yet in the sense that we have gone beyond a point where we're likely to become more introspective and backward looking. No, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I, I think these things go in in phases and I, I, I think of it as it's the jellyfish metaphor. You pulse things pulse out and then they pulse back again. And the hope is that every time we pulse out a little bit, our boundaries actually solidify in a in a larger in a wider place. But I think there's always gonna be pushback. Um, like Nicola, I'm really, really delighted to see so many different publishers experimenting, if that's what they're doing. Hopefully it's more than that, with looking past the confines of mainstream versus genre. And you can imagine the scare quotes around both of those words, if you like. Um, but I don't, I, I think that there's still a lot of uh, conservatism in in speculative fiction, just like any other art form. And I think that there are going to be people who push back uh, against an expansive, a more expansive definition, just like back in, uh, back in the day, back in the sixties and seventies, when uh, uh, I'm thinking now of dangerous visions and again, dangerous visions, mm -hmm. when people pushed back against uh, stories by people like Fritz Leiber or, um, or Ellison, people like that, as not really belonging to science fiction. And I think we're going to see that again. Is the encouraging thing, because when I look at the ballot, I mean, I take what you, your, your point about uh, different publishers, different kind of books, and maybe experimenting or not. Now, my, my actually take on that is that I don't see the pub, well, publishers experimenting more than they did in the past. What I see is the nebula voting or nominating body being willing to consider that. And that's mm -hmm. the real change. I think that this is one of the beauties of social media. I think this is where yes. it comes from, that the fact that everybody is talking to each other, there are there's less um, possibility of the really hard cliques forming. I think we have affinity groups. I think people in, well, just like today, in Australia and the West Coast and the East Coast, in the North, in the South, can talk to each other. We're separated by time zones, but mm -hmm. no longer by distance in that particular way. We we can we can just chat, we, whether it's on Skype mm -hmm. or Twitter or Facebook, which frankly is not my favorite medium. But uh, conventions are no longer the only way. Yeah, and there are multiple communities too uh, that uh, that mm -hmm. sometimes talk to each other and sometimes don't, I gather. Um, but I, mm -hmm. I, I think part of that is that the core community of science fiction, and Jonathan and I have talked about this on the on the podcast, the, the group of people, um, people would say mostly young males, but that's questionable these days. Back in the 50s and 60s, the people who could read all the science fiction magazines and all the science fiction novels, that core group has atomized. Um, uh, and and there may be people who still, as you, as you mentioned, uh, with, with the dangerous visions anthologies push back against the idea that science fiction or fantasy can be something the issue right now the issue it seems to me that comes up with 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 hild and with andy and um, ellen's story and with karen's novel is not a new one um i mean one of the if, two of the classics well at least a couple of classic stories i can think of that came up against this same argument uh were pamela zoline's the heat death of the universe and oh, right. Uh, oh, right. right. And, um, okay, um, <laughs> Karen Fowler's What We Didn't See. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's really hard to find a point in either of those stories where it crosses an imaginary line into genre fiction. Um, and that's led me to believe, this. That's the, that, here's my secret agenda of this whole podcast, because I'm working on a talk I have to give at a university next week. I'm beginning to think that science fiction and fantasy, and maybe horror fiction, can be defined as a way of reading as well as of a way of writing. Does that make sense? Oh, that's very interesting. Yes, it does make sense. Because my argument about Hild, and I've been looking at people who, people who have not read it, uh, saying, I don't think it's fantastic. And people who have read it saying, well, there's, there's a prophecy that sort of seems to come true. But it seems to me that a fantasy reader reading that is 
is reading world building is is intuiting the world from the actions of characters. You've got a really a three-year-old uh, learning the world along with the reader. That's exactly the way you read a fantasy novel. Yes, I, I think Hild definitely comes from my experience of reading and writing fantastic fiction. It, without that, Hild wouldn't exist. Hild mm -hmm. relies on, oh, it, it relies on so much historical fiction, but it relies on Lord of the Rings. Without Lord of the Rings, this book wouldn't exist. I would not have my affinity with all things Anglo-Saxon. I wouldn't mm -hmm. have... Uh, it's it just... I think the way to read books like this, it, it's an essential stance to the world. Some people read to have a difficult time. They, they like to wrestle with every sentence. Some people like to fall into a book, like they like to fall down a well. Mm -hmm. Some people like to walk into a world and figure it out and go, oh, look at that, I, I know what she's doing. Or, ooh, look, here's a little secret that no one but me will understand. Little, little uh, genre Easter eggs, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, Jonathan, were you going to say something? No, I wasn't. I was waiting for you to say what you were going to say. Well, I, uh, the, the genre Easter eggs is an interesting way of, of, of thinking of it because uh, we've talked again on the podcast about fantasy novels that aren't fantasy novels. If, 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 you, if the Nebulas or the Hugos were to come up with some literary theory definition of genre, it would be catastrophic. One of the classic fantasy novels that everybody knows is a classic fantasy or trilogy is the Gorman Guest, the Mervyn Peak things. Mm -hmm. And yet nobody has pointed out anywhere in any of those novels where it crosses the line into the impossible. Exactly. It's, I was thinking about this, oh, uh, a while ago. I was thinking about the definition of speculative fiction. There are some people, I think it was, who was it? It might have been Margaret Atwood who thinks of speculative fiction as something that really could happen as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, the squids in space. She um, also thought that she had invented the term. Ah, uh, bless her. <laughs> uh, but if you think of historical fiction as something that really could have happened, then it's just a question of tenses. Uh, well, in addition to which, with, with if you're going back to 7th century uh, Britain, there... There's so little information that what you're doing is essentially extrapolating, which is a science fictional technique. Totally. As I say, I could not have done this book without having learnt everything I learnt from the books I read, the books I grew up with, the books I've, I've already written. In many ways, Hild is much closer to Ammonite than to any of my other work. It is, it's pure world building. If I'd actually I'd let Hild even once do something impossible that nobody on the planet would disagree that it was fantasy. Mm -hmm. Hmm. There are, if, if, by the way, I noticed there, there, there are a couple of Ammonites in, in Hild, aren't there? Yes, yes, there are. <laughs> I love stones. those I things. That, what can I say? <laughs> but that's what struck me as interesting is that genre is, it goes back to my point of genre as a way of reading things, and I think you're absolutely right. If you adopt the term speculative fiction, then almost all historical fiction has to fit into that. And the less complete the historical record we have, the more speculative it becomes, because several people have pointed out, uh, uh, I, I, I forget who it was, I think it was Cecilia Holland in her review in Locus said that, well, Hilary Mantel had the advantage of writing about an extremely well-documented era. Uh, right. So she's very constrained right. in her imagination. You chose an era in which your imagination is necessary to build the world, mm -hmm. because we just don't have enough. Uh, depends what you mean by enough. I mean, I, I, to well, me, I had just the right amount. I got to really play, and I had to work like a dog. I had to, because... There are all these 
we know what any any academic discipline is like, particularly you, Gary. It's yeah. there are schools of thought, and no matter what I landed on, historically speaking, with Hild, somebody was going to disagree. Oh no, that didn't happen. Oh no, it would not have happened that way. So I'm going to be wrong about some things, but I tried very very hard to make it impossible for anyone to read that book and be able to point and say, no, that didn't happen, and here's the evidence. As well, I guess that's what I meant. Yeah, by not having enough, I guess I meant not having too much. There wasn't mm -hmm. so much historical documentation to constrain you. I mean, there's, what, a paragraph in the Bede's Ecclesiastical History, which is all we really know. Is that correct? That's right. There's also um, a few lines in... Oh, I can't remember. I think it might be, mm, I don't think it's the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but it's something very similar that mm -hmm. many people seem to think comes from a source that is no longer with us. But it, it it's very similar to be, there. there is nothing additional. It's just, it's kind of a confirmation. We don't think Bede was on crack, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever tempted to set the book in a secondary world? I mean, I'm, I ask the question because I look at what, say, Guy, Guy K obviously does, you know, where, where he decides deliberately that I don't have this amount of information or that those facts. I'm putting words, thoughts, lives into people who really existed, so I will take it a step to the left or right, however you want to phrase it and move into a secondary world so people will know that I am making this part up. Yes. I When I first started thinking about this book, it was going to be an alternate history, mainly because the, we knew so little. And most of, the, most of the, the biggest point for me was that I knew so little about Hild, and I couldn't find out anything about her. And so I thought, well, okay, let's just, do the 70,000 foot level. Let's just compress everything and really, and then expand from there. I was going to imagine what might have happened, how the world might have changed if the Synod of Whitby had gone the other way. This, I, do you want me to explain yeah. the Synod of Whitby? Sure. Should I? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just quickly, yeah. So the Synod of Whitby was a meeting between two factions of the Christian church at which the biggest king of the time basically had to make a choice which one was going to be the dominant faction. And the way it went in 664 was that the Roman Catholic Church was chosen. And so I was I was trying to think what how would the world have changed if the so-called Celtic Church had won? How would that have altered life, the universe and everything? But honestly that just felt too weirdly easy to me. I, it wasn't enough of a challenge. <laughs> I, I wanted to really, I write to find out. So I wanted to find out. It's like, we don't know about Hild, so I'm bloody well going to find out. I am going to build the seventh century and I'm going to grow this person inside just to see what she could really have been like. So for you was what... Cecilia Holland described as a challenge because you had to describe the world actually part of the point of it? Yes. World building, scene setting, landscape, if you like, is it's my primary joy as a writer. I love doing that. It's the, the part that was that I could live without that make this book more difficult than I would like is the fact that I am talking about an era that readers aren't familiar with. So someone like Hilary Mantel, she's mm -hmm. talking about the Tudors. Everybody knows, everyone knows that story. You know, Henry had eight wives, they know the little mm -hmm. rhyme, they know who happened when and how and why. They know nothing about the the seventh century. They know, most people, they think, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that period. I studied that in school. That was, you know, like William the Conqueror. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> that was four this centuries is even, this is even, bef even before Beowulf, isn't it? Uh, it depends. Depends who you talk to. Uh, Beowulf <laughs> is set, I would say, in the fifth or sixth century. And some people say, think it was written in the eighth. And this is 
um, my book okay. actually happens in the seventh. So, yeah, depends but on the, the uh, By the way, speaking of the way you just described the Senate of Whitby, it occurred to me that this is this is part of a bookend set with Hilary Mantel's novels because you're explaining how the British Church became Roman Catholic, and he's and and she's explaining how it didn't. I'm sorry, I missed most I mean, of that. We're having connectivity problems. Oh, okay. It, it just occurred to me that this is it's a, it's a sort of a bookend with the uh, the uh, Hilary Mantel novels, and that you're explaining how the British Church became Roman, and she's explaining how the Henry VIII rejected that. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. In that sense, definitely bookends, and we have lots of information about one because we have documents and not much information about the other because we just have one monk you know, sucking on his quill and musing about how to spin this story of his own making. And it's, 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 a, it's a very sensual book. And I, I, when, when you agreed to be on because I've been wanting to read it, but, they, but Jonathan makes me write reviews for Locus, so I have to read those books. Um, <laughs> so I, I downloaded it, and I'm, I've been reading it this week, and it's, it's sensually, it's just stunning. I mean, the colors, the things, things I would not have thought of, like how much your clothes weighed Mm -hmm. And how heavy these cuffs, cuffs and, uh, and and necklaces would be. I'm losing you. But I want to can... mm -hmm. go ahead. I'm sorry. Gary's just talking about uh, the depth of the sensory detail in the book and how he was struck by uh, descriptions of the clothing, how much it weighed, how much the, you know, the, the goblets and things weighed, all this kind of thing, and how it built the world for him with that way from the book. I'm again missed most of that, uh, but let me just talk about yeah. the sensory detail, and yeah, sure. hopefully you can edit it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The sensory detail really mattered to me because I I'm a big fan of immersive fiction, and so I just I wanted people to really really feel as though this is how it was that that they know what the clothes felt like. They know what things smelt like. They, they could uh, feel the weight of, of whatever, whether we're talking about clothes or weaponry. Or, I researched everything, and I had the best time with that. Okay. The cup that, uh, if you can hear me now, uh, when she's, I think, seven years old and she has to carry a cup from one end of the hall to the other, mm -hmm. um, and it struck me as being, I'd never thought about how much those cups weighed. Well, it's an exaggeration because I don't think they would have had a cup that big. I mean, mostly the Anglo-Saxon uh, gold work was so fine. They would have found a way to make it look hefty and be a lot lighter. Hmm. But I just, I really wanted this to be an extra challenge for Hild and to show the richness of Edwin's court, if you like. Although it, I have problems with using the word court, but so that's why I hesitate with that. But yeah, the, uh -huh. cup, the cup scene was just, I enjoyed the hell out of that. I, I <laughs> wish it were a shorter scene, so I wish I could do readings from that. It's kind of a mm -hmm. long scene though, but yeah, I love it. It's a fantastic scene. It's one of my favorites. And it just to to jump in, because I can't resist saying that one of the things I love about this scene is um, that it reads it reads like the best of speculative fiction to me. It's the the outsider hero who has to come in and take on this this thing that she knows that she can't do. Um, and she does it in a way that is just exciting and engaging and and in literally everybody claps and shouts her name yeah. and i think that's very to me that's very speculative fictional to to go back not to derail the conversation gary but at some point i really do want to go back to this notion of reading of science fiction speculative fiction being a reading stance not just mm. a writing stance i think okay okay let me let me throw out another idea uh this is Bearing in mind, I have not finished the novel yet, but I've been fascinated by it for the last couple of days. The um, there's a science fictional way of reading it, I think. The other novel that comes to mind later later on, when she's not a little girl, is um, the name of the rose. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Umber- not, and the reason I thought of Umberto Eco is not necessarily because he sets this in a medieval monastery, but because he introduces a science fiction-like character into a fantasy-like setting. In other right. words, William of Baskerville observes and draws deductions. Hill right. observes better than anybody else in her world and draws deductions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you've got the beginning of the science of observation in this novel, which is set several centuries before uh, Echo's novel, but it strikes me that she's a character that any science fiction reader can identify with. Yes. Um, I have just in the last few days, I've seen several references to Hild being Sherlockian. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, she just doesn't have the vocabulary. She doesn't know how to describe what she does. And so she's very happy to use the language of prophecy and dream to as a tool to to explain to people what they need to know. She doesn't but she doesn't understand. She doesn't have any concept of the scientific method. She doesn't have any concept of inductive versus deductive thinking. She just knows what she knows. She does not mm-hmm. always sure. She knows why she knows it, but she doesn't know how to convey the connections. And and it's very frustrating for her sometimes, especially as a child, to to try to explain to people. But I know this. Uh-huh. It's so obvious because it is obvious to her because she's incredibly smart, and in she's that way, yeah. yeah, she's very science fictional in this way. She's she's just like all those super competent people in the spaceship. You know, the, we just watched Gravity this afternoon, and it mm-hmm. it was really interesting watching Sandra Bullock be utterly human, and she's nothing special. She's a tyro out there in space. But she does have some training, and she figures it out, and she is determined, and she makes it happen. And that's, mm-hmm. in that sense, it's complete science fiction. Hild is, is science fiction without um, a rocket. Well, it's, it's someone who solves problems through reason, through, through yeah. observation and deduction and, and rationality. And I think you're absolutely right that Sandra Bullock is the same kind of character. I've seen it. By the way, I've seen her attacked in that movie as, as being an anti-feminist character who's completely dependent on her fantasies of George Clooney. Oh, um, yikes. I know. I couldn't figure that out either, but still. Um, but, okay. Well, whatever makes the film made, I suppose. But there's a there's a there's a kind of science fiction hero, and, and we've we've come to think of it as the competent Heinlein hero, mm-hmm. uh, who presumably exists in all times and places. You can find uh, figures like that uh, in novels like Moby Dick, for heaven's sake. Uh, people who simply know how to draw deductions based on what they observe, and that I think is part of what the appeal of of Hild is. For the science fiction reader, I think the appeal for the fantasy reader may be in the world building. It may be in that we have to learn this world. It may be in the question of uh, whether these omens are actually omens and so forth and so on. But for the science fiction reader, it's held herself. She thinks. And that's something all of us science fiction readers love to watch is somebody think. (laughs) That's true. And I I think that the fantasy, uh, for the fantasy readers of book like Hild, um, I I think the appeal is that is about the power, because ultimately, I think fantasy is about power and the exercise of power, which isn't always a rational act. Um, And so I think that uh, that that's part of because a lot of people really do seem to think that Hild is a fantasy. And the only explanation that I can come up with for that, since there is actually no magic in the book, is this notion that she exercises some kind of power over people that no one can really explain. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the affect. I mean, it, it, it feels mm-hmm. like a fantasy. Right. Uh, and I, I, the thing that I think is healthy about the uh, Nebula Award nomination is that Books can get trapped in one genre, and it can happen to science fiction and fantasy books. It can happen to historical books. And the example I always cite uh, is Cecilia Holland, who wrote a series of six novels about a Viking named Corbin Loosestrife, uh, set in the Viking worldview. And we've we've seen this argument that Gene Wolfe has written things set in you know uh, the worldview of the period he's writing about. But by the end of by the fifth or sixth novel, Cecilia's novels are pure fantasy. This person is 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 traveling into some 
mystical realm. There are prophecies that really come true. There are transformations. But the fact is, her books, because she's known to be an historical novelist and because the first three novels were purely historical novels, nobody read them as fantasy novels. Um, and that goes back to my point about reading, that if you're determined to read something as a historical novel, you'll discount the fantasy. If you're determined to read something as a fantasy novel, you can discount the history. Mm-hmm. But it's like um, my work is people do see it as fantasy, even if it's not. And I I'm still have not made up my mind whether or not you could call Hild speculative fiction or fantasy. Mm-hmm. I, you Actually, I have made up my mind. It is speculative fiction, but is it fantasy? Um, I'm not sure yet because it's the first of three and we don't, I don't know yet what happens in book two with regard to God and miracles. I suspect mm. I'm going to come down on the side of rationality, but that's not set in stone. And now I've completely lost track of what I had started to say. What was I saying? Uh, we were talking about about uh, if you're if you're determined to read a book one way or another, then that is the way that you will read it, and you will discount the elements that don't fit into your particular reading stance. Right, um, that, and, and people have been reading Hild as fantasy or science fiction or speculative fiction simply because that's what I used to write. Well, I mean, look, I understand why people would read it as science fiction because you write science fiction. I understand why people would read it as fantasy because that's the setting that you've appropriated in some ways or used or, mm. or that has been appropriated by fantasy as its mm. default background, if you like. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you look at Game of Thrones, it doesn't look a million miles different from the, that sort of English rural under, you know, sort of setting that, that fits in so many kind of fantasy stories. Is the, the key difference, though, I guess, honoring the character's worldview? Because, you know, you talk about whether you come down on the side of rationality or whether you come or, or, or not in, in future stories. But isn't it isn't a significant factor that to theoretically, or I would imagine at least to the, the, the people at that time, they didn't have a fantastical worldview or not. What we would see as a fantastical worldview was their rea- their realistic worldview. They, they believed these things as to be real. I think that's a bit of a generalization because okay. I think then as now uh everyone was different some people were were natural skeptics and some people were incredibly superstitious they would believe anything they would believe believe everything Hmm. um and people born in in the same families could have different ways of looking at things i know that the age of conversion certainly the way i see it and the way i read what evidence we do have is that much conversion was at least as political as, in fact, all conversion at the royal level was political. And it was only as Christianity became established that people started to really believe it in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Christianity basically was political expediency. Oh, yeah. Uh, everything a monarch does is about expediency i mean it's like the president he what he actually believes we'll never know because it's expedient for him or perhaps her in in a couple of years to say what will work they're pragmatic that's i'm glad you said that because that leads into another issue i wanted to raise which is that both of you separately have written very insightfully about survival in corporate environments. Is that a fair way to put it? Uh, It's certainly a fair way to put it from the perspective of solitaire, yes, absolutely. I was going to say solitaire, which we should point out was reissued by Small Beer a few years ago. Yes. Which I always think is a good thing because I've come to think that Small Beer is a kind of imprimatur of really good literary fantastic Mm -hmm. fiction. So congratulations. Small beers. Oh, thank you. They're fan, Gavin is a fantastic publisher. And uh, yes, I'm extremely pleased to have the book with Small Beer. But it is a kind of uh, terrifying world, which in its own way is as political as the world of Hill. 
I do think it's true that we're both interested in politics, um, although in in very different ways. And and it's interesting for us to have the conversations because and, and this is actually something we've written about in a joint essay, the, the fact mm-hmm. that there are convergences in our work or commonalities of concern that occur because we've been together for so long and because we live together and because we work in proximity to each other. Um, a lot of them are, are confluences that occur with other people's work just because they happen to think the same way about things. But, you know, they don't, as we put it in the essay, they don't rub up against each other in their everyday life. And so right. it's not. It, so I think um, I think it's one of the interesting aspects of being a writing couple is allowing those things to um, to emerge and to cross over without duplication or repetition or um, self-referral in a particular way. So I find the politics of Hild absolutely fascinating um, because they're so integral to the world building itself. I mean, the world is the politics is the world in mm-hmm. in Hild's milieu, uh, whereas in the kind of a near future somewhat dystopian environment that solitaire takes place in um the corporation is i'm pretty ambi- solitaire is a pretty ambivalent novel in a lot of ways and i'm i believe that it's ambivalent about corporations because i don't think of giant corporations as being evil i think that's uh, that's a i think that's simplistic and reductive and mm-hmm. um i think that that corporations like um, well, I suppose like everything, seventh century to however many centuries we have left, it, collections of people come together and in their groups, depending on who they are and what's happening, they make particular decisions as a group. And corporations are just giant groups of people making decisions every day that that sometimes are a lot more effective and a lot more benevolent than other times. And I have no idea if I'm answering anything that <laughs> no, any no, actual point that you were trying to raise or not. But this is where but, my thinking goes. <laughs> no, it's 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 very. I mean, the, the the most terrifying part of solitaire is the idea of being in solitary confinement for a lifetime, mm-hmm. within I guess a span of a few months. I'm I may not be yeah. remembering it right. Um, you are. But 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 so, so that was just beautifully done. But the idea of the corporate world being uh, a kind of medieval political world i think it shows up there i think it shows up uh in some form or another in in uh, in, in nicola's novel slow river and i mm-hmm. wonder if if it shows up in because i know both of you have done some kind of writing consultancies with corporations and you're in seattle you're in a high-tech area uh mm-hmm. th- is this something you see in in your sort of day-to-day lives is with, with your sort of writing um is, is consultancy the right word, I guess? We have an editing business and we do consultancy and coaching, but actually, certainly from my perspective, my corporate um, experience comes from uh, 20 years of working for corporations. Um, you for Wizards of the Coast, right? I did. That was my last corporate gig was for Wizards of the Coast. Um, but since then, I've continued to, to do... Uh, consultancy in organizational development and organizational dynamics. So that's something I've always been interested in. And that's, of course, what prompted solitaire, that whole aspect of solitaire. Yeah. I would like to jump in here and talk about how solitaire is becoming more and more real in a particular way. I don't know if you've been reading about Google and basically how they're turning Mountain View into a very co-like, co is the world, um, one of the worlds of solitaire. By world, I mean, Mm -hmm. um, like it's the fiefdom of this particular Mm -hmm. corporation. And they are turning, Google are turning Mountain View that with, with, they have all sorts of plans into a structure, a situation very, very similar to what (laughs) Kelly wrote about in Solitaire. It's kind of mind-boggling, actually. But for me, politics is all about, I I think politics and corporations really go together because it's it's hierarchical and it becomes a bit of a fiefdom. Once you have a, a a CEO who becomes 
a charismatic leader. They're, they're essentially a king or a queen. Mm. I think that, hmm, let me think about that. That may be more true of the West Coast of the, of the new model of corporate life, of the, um, of the Google model you mentioned, or possibly the Facebook model, or possibly the uh, Wikipedia model, than the old 50s and 60s corporate model of uh, you know, the corporation as a kind of faceless dystopia, because corporate science fiction, in one sense, in the early days, probably looked like earlier Soviet science fiction. It looked like uh, Zamyatin's We, or it looked like Harlan Ellison's Repent Harlequin and that sort of thing. Mm. That's not the model anymore. And I think you're right. The model these days look more like medieval kings, all of them in California or Washington State, it seems, or Oregon, uh, battling for their fiefdoms. Mm -hmm. When do you think that changed? When they started reading science fiction. <laughs> when, they read, think, when they read Neuromancer. When I was they, just going to say, when William Gibson started writing. Um, yeah, yeah, when I think it changed with the internet, and I think it changed with the notion of the sprawl. Yeah. Um, with that, that whole concept of the interconnectivity, not just of, of people, but of business, of politics, of interests that are larger than any individual person. Does that book end up being the most influential book of science fiction ever written, almost? Mm, I don't know. I, I think you could certainly argue for it being on the top five. Um, it occurs to me just because, as it has a number of times over the years, that it, of the science fiction books I can think published in my lifetime, mm -hmm. or you know, since I became, you know, sort of, or in my reading lifetime, I guess, since I was in my mid-teens, uh, sort of starting in the, you know, in the mid-60s when I was born, so in the mid-70s, late-70s, it's been the, 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 the book that people outside of science fiction seem to have picked up, responded to, and to some degree tried to make real. You know, there are people trying to make the world like parts of Neuromancer or their word. That's that's where they started from. So do you think that that's that that is reactive or do you think that Gibson was predictive or both? Reactive. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that Gibson and I, I've, I've never met him. I've read a few interviews. I've read the books. So I'm, I'm not looking to represent his view, but I don't suspect that he was actually attempting to be deeply predictive at all. I think it a particular kind of story and a particular kind of setting appealed to him, but I think that it that it appealed to others and they reacted to it and tried to make it real. And you can see that in the kind of interviews that, that you know uh, people have got caught up in making the kind of t technology of cyberpunk have given over the years. Mm -hmm. I, I think you probably have a point there. I think mm -hmm. that's actually one of the beauties of literature in general. Mm. is that people fall into a world, They a, a really good writer can spin a spell that the reader will fall under yeah. and, and change. People change when they read these books because it's, it's a lived experience on, on a particular... I mean, if you look at all those NASA scientists who put people on the moon, who are, are still mm. sending out the Hubble telescope and Kepler, they read science fiction. They are doing what they do because stories showed them. Mm. Because they were moved. Yeah. Or at least because, because stories two or three times removed may have shown that. I'm not sure, and I have no idea what the facts are. I don't, I'm sure we can demonstrate that, that Larry Page or Jimmy Whale ever read Neuromancer, but they certainly absorbed the fallout from it at some point. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and even if only through the Matrix movies. So, <laughs> so <laughs> well, the other book, I, I need to tell you, I wanted to tell you this, Nicola, anyway, I'm teaching a course on sustainability in science fiction. And one of the books I almost taught was Slow River, because Slow River is way more relevant now than it was when it came out. I think and, in many ways it gets gets more relevant if you look at the intellectual property issues. Yeah. Well, the intellectual property issue is something that uh, there there are a lot of issues in it, uh, and it but it strikes me as that's the sort of thing that um, I remember. That was the first book of yours I reviewed, as a matter of fact. I remember thinking mm -hmm. this is the first science fiction book I ever read about waste management. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> odd. And now waste management is a huge deal. 
Yes, but it was um, when I was writing it. It was beginning to be. Kelly was working one of her corporate gigs, um, doing marketing stuff for an environmental engineering company. And she would bring home magazines with titles like Garbage and Pollution Engineering and something <laughs> called the Pigalog, which was um, a catalog, a catalog of industrial equipment for uh, bad situations. So all these neoprene suits and hazmat gear. And I loved it. I just used to read these catalogs and go, whoa, my brain just went off. And so then I stopped doing the equations and building little heliostats uh, where, with the, and, and trying to figure out how people could bioremediate all this pollution we were pumping into the world. I had the best time. Mm. It was a, in a way, it was a Paolo Bacigalupi story decade, well, not a decade, but years before Paolo started writing, because you'd, you'd worked out the fact that this could be corporatized and become a major profit center, as well as a sort of um, manner of dealing with uh, with industrial waste and, and, and water waste. Absolutely. But that's one of the things that I learned from reading science fiction actually from reading fiction in general, but particularly uh -huh. science fiction, is to look at everything from all sides. Just see it from well, who's affected by this, the people under it, the people next to it, the people over it, the people fighting it, the people pushing it. Mm -hmm. um, Theodore Sturgeon used to wear a medal around his um, neck in the shape of a Q, letter Q with an arrow through it. Are you familiar with this at all? No. Um, no. Well, it was it was his mantra as a writer, and his mantra was "Ask the next question." Mm. The Q represented mm. the question; the arrow meant "Ask the next question." And he basically used that as a way of accounting for his entire career as a science fiction writer. Um, you take a situation, you ask a question about it, and you don't stop with that, and you keep asking the next question until you cut a science fiction story. Right, and also how my question is almost always. But how does it really work? Mm -hmm. yeah. My question is always, what does it mean? What does it, what does it mean? Um, not so much what is it, um, hmm, what is its literal meaning, but what does it represent or what kind of change does it bring? Uh, or right. What kind of conse consequence? What are the consequences of these things and these choices? And I'm I, Gary. I'm really fascinated by this whole notion of of science fiction and and a reading stance um, that people bring to it, because I think that science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction, is very much, uh, among other things, uh, the literature of outsiders, or of a particular mm -hmm. outside stance. And I'm realizing now that I I tend to read, looking for. Uh, whatever I'm reading, the, any literature that I'm reading, looking for a way to connect with the protagonist so that I can find the way into, with them, find the way into their situation. And if there's no situation in the book that that is transformative in that particular way, that I can go into and come out of changed along with the protagonist, then mm -hmm. I become less interested, no matter how prettily it's written or or how action-packed it might be, etc. Um, if it doesn't draw me in in that particular way, then um, it, it doesn't engage me. And I wonder if that's, I've always assumed that's just because that's how I read, but I wonder if I read that way because I've read so much science fiction and fantasy. I don't know. I'll have to think about it. I think you're a trained reader. There, there was an, art, an essay by uh, China Mieville in The Guardian a couple of years ago in which she was trying to explain why fantastic works never get nominated for the Booker Award. Mm. And his argument was not, it's, it's not a bias against genre. Uh, the way he defined it, it's a bias of, it's a bias in favor of the fiction of recognition and not in favor of the fiction of estrangement. The fixture of recognition he described, I'm really good at this, I'm remembering this on my own and I can't believe it. Uh, <laughs> the fiction of recognition he described as, you read a story and you say, or you read a story or a novel and you say, ah, yes. The fiction of estrangement, you read something and you say, oh, my. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really sense. good fiction. It does both. Well, the uh, fiction I, can do both. That's true. Uh, yeah. But a couple of examples he gave were things, novels like Jane Eyre or Moby Dick, 
which are which can be read as fantasies completely or as science fiction. Uh, there, there's completely a sense of discovery in those books. There's a sense of things in or Wuthering Heights for that matter. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a gothic sense of this is outside my experience and this is really strange and it's a lot of fun to read. Um, as opposed to uh, well, let's say most of George Eliot, as opposed to Adam Bede, for example, where you read it and say, that's exactly the way humans behave. I recognize that. I'm comfortable mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between um, Bring Up the Bodies or Wolf Hall and Hild. Uh, everyone knows, as I, as I was saying, that the story mm-hmm. of the Tudors, they, they have seen it on TV. They, they know how it works. And exactly. then... There's the seventh century that is is a scary place. Absolutely, it's a, it's a sense of which means that you unfold seventh century Britain in much the same way you unfold any fantasy narrative you're reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have no preconceptions to work with at all, or very right. few, or the ones you have right. are probably wrong. <laughs> well, you'll find that out. Well, the thing, the beauty of writing about the early seventh century is that things changed so fast that. It was wrong 10 years later for everybody, everything. It was really, we think we live in a time of change now, but oh, wow, going from an oral culture to this extra somatic information transfer, you know, the whole notion of writing, which was new to so many people at so many levels. Literacy is, that's something I think is fascinating. And it's interesting, one of the other nominees that's up for, um, the nebula this year is Sophia Samatar's A Stranger in Alondria, which is mm-hmm. also about the discovery of language. It's about the discovery of uses of language. And in both in both Hild and in her novel, the notion that knowing language is a political act is something that I think most of us never thought of. I think knowledge of every kind is is well, yeah. power, and power is politics. So language. But we're used to thinking of language as uh something natural uh and and i su- do you remember suzette hayden hayes oh, thank suzette you Hayden. Yeah. Okay. yeah thank you <laughs> yes uh-huh. yeah. yeah it's all about language but those people were confined they weren't ranging and they were not in power they were imprisoned in a way they were they were slaves mm-hmm. who had to learn language mm-hmm. But, but language was part of their path to freedom. Um, and it, interestingly, as a side note, Suzette Elgin also wrote a whole series of books about coping, uh, language books, um, the general art of verbal self-defense, yeah, including okay. books for the corporate world, et cetera, et cetera, which I made great use of when I was coming up in my corporate career. But she started um, out with Native Tongue, which was completely yeah. a novel about language as gender. About language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But language is, language is access, and I think it's something that we take for granted. It, certainly in this culture, we, we tend to take literacy for granted. Um, and even more so, we take language for granted as a means of accessing the culture. But one of the things that has started to um, certainly inform my thinking, if not my writing yet, uh, although I suspect it will, is a study that I did, I did a certificate program several years ago in American Sign Language and Deaf Culture. Hmm. And it was the, the first time that I was really presented with the idea uh, that language is a center around which people gather and that I live, that I'm a person of privilege because I live in a hearing world. And hmm. the access to my world is all through spoken. So much of it is through spoken language. Um, it's hard to get by in this world if you don't read. It's very hard to get by in this world if you don't hear English. And not being able to hear English makes it a lot harder to learn how to read it. Uh, and so there's, um, and especially for some, for when people are, are sort of forced into a language mode that is not their natural mode. That's a whole, poli- there's an, an enormous political discussion in the deaf community, which I won't try to represent because I'm not deaf and I'm sure I don't understand all the nuances. Uh, but I understand enough to to realize that um, that language really is about access to information mm-hmm. and to culture and to all kinds of things that people take for granted now. I think that's what's fascinating about 
the difference, one of the differences, as you mentioned, between our world and the world of Hild, in our world, lack of access to language or lack of access to literacy is is a disadvantage, frankly, the disadvantage of a minority, at least in the United States. Whereas in the world of Hild, knowing how to read and write was a political advantage. It was it, it made you part of the elite. Uh, yes. So in, in, in a way, our world is the inverse of uh, that of 7th century Britain, and I think that may be one of the reasons we're so fascinated by a world like that. I'm sorry, explain to me again why it's the inverse of the 7th century. Because in our world, lack of access to language is a disadvantage. In Hill's world, access to language is an advantage. Okay. It, I, it, I, I must be, it sounds like the same thing to me. Am I... Am I I may not be coming through clearly. Yeah, I actually, I think that right now the entire Western Hemisphere is live tweeting the Oscars and uh, <laughs> eating okay, up the yeah. internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but Band. it's. I think. I think what you're saying is that um, it's the paradigm. The paradigm in Hild is that very, very few people have access to the language slash power yes. equation, whereas. In our world, lots and lots of people have access to that, and and so you know, the the minority of people now who are disadvantaged are by access to language. The, the new paradigm is we all have access to language and to the information and power that it conveys. Whereas in the seventh century, no one had access to that. For Thank you. That's people. a very very much more articulate way of saying what I was getting toward. And now we'll see if Nicola heard any of it. <laughs> I am I'm hearing very little at the moment. I'm having a very hard time with with oh. connection. I don't know what the problem is, but um, I'm I'm you're, you're cutting in and out. But I just want to add a thing about Hild and language, which is that right at the beginning, as people became literate, it, when Hild was very young, um, the real elite didn't read and write. They uh, they got other people to read and write for them. People who read, who read and wrote, were tools of the elite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's but one last will, thing. Sorry, Gary, what you say? I was just going to say we will learn about this in at least one or possibly two more novels about Hild. Yes, that's my plan. Um, there again, my plan originally was to write just one novel and I got to a hundred thousand words and she was just 12 and I thought, ah, it's not going to work. So I, I would not like to predict having said that the books do fall naturally into three parts. And I know the very last line of the very last book. So I can promise that won't, I'm not going to, as, as we say in our house, I'm not going to go Delta. I'm not going to keep spreading and spreading and go thinner and thinner. I am, I'm going to remain a river that cuts to the sea quite swiftly, I hope. Excellent. <laughs> There's one last question I'd like to ask about, and it's kind of germane to what, what we've been talking about a little bit. With Hild on the Nebula ballot and with the awards season ahead of us, do you feel it placing it, 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 it placing on the ballot actually affects how people will read it? Yes and no. I, I think... Certainly those who are used to reading fantasy and science fiction might be more willing to pick it up. I, I think, and it's possible that some people who read literary fiction might fold their arms mentally and emotionally and say, well, I don't read that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I think as long as people look at the map and read the glossary and and are brave. Essentially, I think if you get through the first 50 pages, you're going to be fine. Yeah. If you can't get through the first 50 pages, that's because your brain will never work the way I need your brain to work, <laughs> to work on you. It's, uh, we have incompatible systems, essentially. If you can't read the first 50 pages, this book is not going to work for you. I guess I ask partly because I have this suspicion that if I were the publisher of Hild, and I, I was putting out, say, two separate, say, trade paperback editions, 
I believe I could put a cover on it that would persuade somebody from the beginning to the end that they're absolutely reading a fantasy novel and somebody else that they're absolutely reading a literary novel because we bring so much contextual baggage into these things when we read anything. I think it's going to be interesting to find out because the UK version is coming out and that's being pitched wholly as literary. And the paperback here is coming out in October and they are billing it as book one of the Light of the World trilogy. So, <laughs> oh, wow. With a map. Yes, with a map. <laughs> well, it'll be... One quick question, though. I, I, I was The first thing I thought about... Because as you as you know, Nicola, I read your wonderful assemblage autobiography thing, CD kit, whatever it is. How much of Hild came from growing up in Yorkshire? Oh, huge, huge amount of it. Um, I was born and bred there, and so was Hild. Mm-hmm. It's we came from the same place, and yeah, this was. I admit it. It was my excuse to time travel. I wanted to know what the place where I grew up looked like without the contrails on the sky, without railway lines, without the smell of exhaust, where all you could hear were birds. Well, on that, that makes a lot of sense. And on that note, we're at, at about our hour, so we might wind up. I hope we'll get to maybe cross paths at some point in the coming year or so and maybe talk again, Nicole and Kelly. It's been a great pleasure to have you with us. I would really like that. Me too. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope I'll see you in uh, sometime this summer, possibly at the Locus Awards. If you're in cool. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Great. And until then, I'll talk to you next week, Gary. All right. I will talk to you as well. Okay. Bye.